0: there and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host Katie Rulan, and in conversation with others we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole and what can be done to change it. In this episode we will be discussing basic income or guaranteed income. I'm joined by two guests who both lead small-scale basic income initiatives to support vulnerable communities and to learn lessons for the future. And what I think makes this episode even more interesting is that the initiatives are in two very different contexts. One is in Boston in the US and the other in Hyderabad in India. My first guest is Sarath Davala. he is research director of the WorkFree Project, a universal basic income pilot in waste picker communities in the city of Hyderabad. He is also president of the Basic Income Earth Network, a large network that brings together organizations and individuals working on basic income around the world. My second guest is Melody Valdez. She is Chief Program Officer of United South End Settlements in Boston, and she leads the implementation of the STEP Guaranteed Income Intervention for Vulnerable Families. We hear more about the interventions they're leading and the rationale for basic income. Both interventions we hear about provide monthly cash transfers or income supplements, and do so unconditionally, and they also link to other services. One important difference, however, is that the intervention led by Sarah is universal, meaning it's provided to everyone in the community. The program led by Melody reaches out to the most vulnerable families in the community they're working in, and especially those that take part in their childcare program. And let me also use this opportunity to make a plug for a similar program I'm working on, as Sarah mentions it in our conversation. It's a universal cash transfer intervention in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, as part of the wider Clarissa program. It's a cash plus program, meaning that we also provide additional family support and community mobilizing. As always, I will put links to this program and of course the other programs, as well as other items mentioned during our conversation in the blog post accompanying each episode. But now let's hear from Sarah and Melody. Melody and Sarath, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's an honor to have you with us and to hear more about the work that you both do in different places in the world, Melody in the US and Sarath in India, on basic income or guaranteed income. Now, to kick off the conversation, it'd be really good to know what basic or guaranteed income is or what people mean when they refer to it. Sarath, could you give us a bit of an explanation? What is basic or guaranteed income?
1: Piti, thank you so much and hi, Melody, and thank you for having me here. Okay, basic income earth network has a, a kind of a standard definition of what we call basic income. I mean, there are basic income-like schemes. The more people are in this space, the more meanings and more definitions now. In the US, they like to call it guaranteed income and not basic income. It's in different places, it means different things. But essentially, when we say basic income as basic income earth network, we mean five things. One is that it is uh, cash and cash alone, which is transferred and not in-kind transfers, not vouchers and not coupons and nothing of that sort. It should be cash, fiat currency. And it is individual and not to the household. Every individual gets it, including children, children, adults, everybody. It is uh, periodic. It is not a one-time grant or twice a year, something like that. But it's periodic. By usually we imply a monthly because usually everybody gets a salary monthly and it is uh, universal which is that every member of a political community receives a basic income i'm not using deliberately not using the term citizen because there are citizens who are living outside the country and there are citizens who are non citizens who are living in the country so that creates huge problem and the real cutting edge the most important characteristic of what makes basic income basic income is it's unconditional. There are no conditions whatsoever, which will qualify you to receive basic income, or there are no conditions that you have to fulfill for it to continue. It is completely unconditional. There are some people who add that it should become a legal right and it should be a human right and it should be non-withdrawable and all that. But um, I think our standard definition is that those five characteristics.
0: Thank you Sarah that's that's very clear. Melody I know that you've been uh, working on a guaranteed income pilot in the US in Boston and maybe you have slight different variation to the five elements that Sarah has just explained is that right?
2: That's right. Thank you Katie and thank you Sarah. Yes, I think our guaranteed income is the same in terms that it's unconditional. They're cash transfers. They're monthly to a member of the household. We don't do it to the whole household, but to a member of the household. We do count household income. The main difference between our guaranteed income pilot and the basic income is that we do have income restrictions for eligibility. The reason behind that is that our guaranteed income program is privately funded, and we are a nonprofit, so we we had to create some parameters for eligibility because we didn't have the funds and we wanted the funds to kind of funnel through those who need it most. So the way that we determine eligibility is family. So we do it by household size and household income that are at 50% or below of the AMI, which is the average median income for the region. So if you are a family of two, the maximum household income should be around $28,000 or to be at the 30% of the AMI which are like what we consider high need families or under 47,000 to be at the 50%. So any household with two members that makes under $47,000 would qualified and we In Boston, the average medium income is about $60,000. So those are families that have a high need. And we really wanted the money that we had, which was limited, to kind of funnel through those families. So I think that is the main difference in the definitions that Sarah shared.
0: Thanks for clarifying. And let's take a step back then and and maybe start with you, Melody, in terms of the initiative that you started implementing about a year and a half ago, if, if I'm right and the reasons for implementing a guaranteed income and how you got to design and implement the program as you are.
2: So we started the program about a year and a half ago. We were coming out of the pandemic and I think the pandemic really taught us a a lot of important lessons. We realized that a lot of our families were experiencing food insecurity and um, as an organization that doesn't have food programming, um, it was something that we had to kind of create to support our community. And we also recognize that a lot of our families that were experiencing food insecurity were not accessing other food service programs that existed in Boston, mainly because they were not accessible to them. They were during work hours. They were. It was very hard for families to get to them. And that because there's a stigma associated with getting food. So as an organization, we decided we're going to create a food program that really responds to the needs of our community that's accessible, where we're delivering. To families, we're making it easy for families to access food and where we're kind of destigmatizing what it means to have this need. And then food was one issue, but then we recognized that a lot of our families were coming to us and saying, I don't have money to pay my rent. I haven't been working for three months. I have a lot of medical bills. I have all these other things that I am not able to access. Because I have been laid off from my work due to COVID, I'm still not getting unemployment because there was a a huge lag in the U.S. around families getting unemployment because so many people had lost their jobs or been displaced or had gotten laid off. So we had, had applied for a grant that was giving us funds that were very much conditional funds where we had a certain amount of money and we could give mini grants to families based on need. And the way that we had to do this, they had some categories. It was like rent, food, some things that they deemed really important. And we sort of had to assess our families and give them the money depending on need. And the process felt really uncomfortable for us because people were coming to us with all sorts of needs. And we had to create like value judgments and be like, well, this seems more important than that. Or like, I'm going to give you money for this, but not for that. And coming out of that process, and we were really grateful to have had the opportunity to give this mini grants, but coming out of that process, what I recognized and what we recognized as an organization was that this doesn't feel good. We don't understand families' situation. Families know their situation best, and we are sort of creating these parameters around what they could use the money for, what they can, what we are paying them. So I I was like, I really wish we had an opportunity to give families money, but it was sort of like more of a dream than a reality at that point, because we didn't have any money to do this. It didn't seem feasible for us at the time. And fast forward to a few months later, I had a a funder, a particular funder that was interested in doing a, a program like this because he had been reading about guaranteed income as a way to really uplift families. He came to our organization and was like, can you guys do this? And can you do it quickly? I want to make sure that it doesn't become like a bureaucratic process where <laughs> the money is sort of getting diluted in this ways. And then what family is getting is like the bare minimum. I really want the bulk of the money to go to family. So can you do this? And can you do it efficiently? I never say no to money that's going to family. <laughs> but at that point, I had no idea how to do this. Like I had read about it, but I was like, sure. And he said, like, can you do it in a month? And I was like, absolutely. But because in the US it has become a movement and there's mayors for guaranteed income, yeah. I had a lot of resources accessible. And I I think the pandemic also taught us about collaboration in ways that we hadn't done before in the nonprofit sector. So I reached out to organizations that have been doing this for a while to kind of learn from, from them, to see how they had doing they had been doing them. It was done at a city level, not so much like a grassroots project like we were trying to do. So I sort of had to pick and choose what we were able to implement in the way that we were doing it. We're doing 16 families. It's a much smaller program, but we have closer links to the families that are in our program because they're already enrolled in other interventions. Because what we wanted to study aside from this idea of just giving people money, it's also that it's not the end all be all like I feel like it's a piece of a larger puzzle because sometimes when the naysayers for guaranteed income are like well people are not getting out of poverty and I'm like right because this isn't it's not just guaranteed income as a solution is in addition to other interventions to support families and uplift families. So one of the things that I wanted to study or that we wanted to study was how does it combine with the interventions that we're providing as a nonprofit, which was our access to high quality early childhood education and care, career coaching, and things that families could access voluntarily. None of this is conditional upon receiving the funds Aside from being enrolled in our program, so they're already getting childcare, so families have that safety net. But we really wanted to study how is this relating to the other programs that we have, and what are some of the outcomes that we're seeing, not only on the adults of the household, but also on the children. So we wanted to kind of study the ripple effects because we're just giving the money to the parents, but kind of seeing what is the impact that is having on the family as a whole.
0: That's so interesting, and. I'm sure there'll be much overlap, Sarath, with the interventions that you've worked on. But Sarath, maybe you want to come in here and share a little bit about your experience working on basic income in India for over a decade, I think.
1: Thanks, Melody. I think that was really, really interesting to hear that. Okay, the first pilot study was in 2011 to 2013 in Madhya Pradesh, uh, which was in rural areas. But now the one which we are doing now, as uh, University of Bath and collaboration with India Network for Basic Income, and we have other local collaborators. We are we are focusing on waste collectors, people who pick up waste from houses and then deposit them in the dumpyards that are there. Basically, I think uh, they are they work for the corporation, but the corporation doesn't own them, and then considers them to be self-employed, and then so doesn't have any kind of uh, employer uh, liability so it's we we decided to choose that occupational group particularly because in the within the context of the decent work debate what happens to people who do this kind of work which is definitely falls in the uh, opposite of the decent work that uh, we are talking about what happens to such a community, occupational community, when you give them an unconditional basic income. So we selected five slums in Hyderabad. Now the question is that, are you going to select only the waste collectors? So we had to follow the principle of universality, but how do you follow the principle of universality? So you take a slum, we say, we take everybody there, whether they do waste collection or not. Everybody who lives in that slum become part of our project. So we have universal, unconditional, monthly, individual, which means that every individual is entitled from a newborn baby to uh, the senior most person in the particular slum. Now, families started saying that, you know, my daughter lives across the road in the next slum. Can we include her? I said, no, <laughs> we can't include her, just as we can't exclude the neighbor who doesn't have any work. Or maybe... He's a street vendor. Those were the dilemmas uh, we had to solve. We are trying to focus on the whole question of labor choices people make, the quality of employment, employment relationship, and also the whole notion of freedom, because basic income theoretically at least is supposed to result in freedom, which is power to say no. People should have the power to say no to what is undesirable in their lives and power to say yes to what they desire. That is, I think, Carl Weiderquist defines freedom as power to say no. We're also dealing with the question of dignity. What is dignity? How do these people understand dignity? Because these are the people who are actually getting up early morning at 4 o'clock, going from house to house and picking up the trash from those houses. And they, many people actually don't want to touch them. They are treated like untouchables. And mostly they also come from castes, which are very the lowest. And mostly they are migrants from the rural areas, and then the city gives them anonymity. They don't want to be identified as doing this kind of work. I think those are the questions. Now, in the basic income pilot debate, one of the things that is missing is, is it enough if you just give a basic income, or is something else is needed? Are we really going by this Fantastic liberal notion of freedom—we are giving it to individuals. What about family? What about community? Because of that, we wanted to bring in the whole question of community. So we call we we call it plus. It is cash plus. Uh, Kitty, I'm sure you know this is also a discussion in Bangladesh. So the plus is essentially trying to mobilize the community in a very systematic way over a period of two years, based on framework of human needs. So here we are giving individuals, but we're expecting also, you know, apart from individual outcomes, we're also expecting community outcomes. We are facilitating, as part of our work, we are facilitating a community process. And uh, this is something really new within the basic income space. It's it's really, really interesting. And uh, the model of the pilot itself is quite interesting. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Sarath, for that explanation. You mentioned something that Melody also picked up on, and that was the question, whether income in and of itself is enough to provide the uplift. And you are doing very interesting community work. And I believe a lot of that is based on principle of universality as well, drawing everybody in the community into those initiatives. And Melody, you're building on the work that you've been already been doing with with families. But it would be very interesting to hear more about your thoughts on the plus elements, if you will. And and indeed, the question is to the extent to which income can help people lift out of poverty or what more they need and what the combination of support looks like and whether that differs from family to family and how that then in practice can be put in place. So quite a lot packed into that one question. But Melody, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yes.
2: And I think Sarah spoke on this as well. But I think for us, one of the things that was really important is, especially in the United States, access to uh, childcare is a really important factor in mobility and workforce development. If families don't have access to high quality early childhood education and care or early childhood education and care, they're not able to join the workforce regardless of their want. So we already had that as a baseline because the family's eligibility in our program, and I don't think I spoke on this, but to be eligible to participate in our guaranteed income program, you had to have children enrolled in one of our youth programs. So you either had to have children enrolled in our early childhood education, our out of school time program, or our summer camp. So we already had a baseline of families that had that link where we knew that their children had a place to go and families had the ability to go to work if they chose to go to work or go to school or pursue opportunities. The other piece of that is while the additional interventions were voluntary, what we recognize is that sometimes, so Sarah's point about having to open bank accounts and supporting families in in getting this fund, sometimes when you give people money, people might need guidance. And it's something that it it differs from family to family. Sometimes you give people money and they're like, I know what to do with it. Thank you so much. I got it. And then sometimes you give people money and they're like, what do I do? I don't have a bank account. How is this (laughs) going to affect other public benefits that I'm receiving? Is this the right thing for me and my family right now? I don't know what to do. I have an additional, we give families $800 for 18 months every month. So it's like, how is this going to change what I'm already doing? So some families have have voluntarily opted into financial coaching as a way of understanding how to best leverage these funds. And I think it was up to the point of, of sort of giving families agency and kind of the power to make decisions. We presented families with these are the options or these are the programs that you have available to you. These programs are available whether they're in the pilot or not. But for families that are in the pilot, a lot of the families have voluntarily opted into this. And and what we've been hearing is that while it is great, sometimes it can be really overwhelming and it's also transitional. So we know that after 18 months, the money is not going to be there following the 18 months. We wish we could do this for a lifetime. So we also want to set families up for success following our pilot. So a lot of these additional interventions is how do we support families to really leverage the money that they're receiving so that we set them up to be in a better place than they were when they started the program. And what we are seeing is that financial coaching has really supported families in that endeavor and that families are finding ways to, or are coming to us thinking about, you know, I, I want to go back to school. What does that look like for me? Or And even at the beginning of the program, when we were, when families were voluntarily opting into the program, they wanted to understand what were some of the financial implications that this money was going to have on their overall well being. Because for families that were enrolled in our STEP pilot, they were already receiving other safety net programs that exist in the US that are income based. So if you're giving families $800 and that money puts them out of eligibility for benefits, that they've had for five or six years, and then they know that they're going to be in the program for 18 months, and then they would have to reapply. And some of these are like very lengthy processes. A lot of the education that happened prior to the application for us was like, how do we support families in understanding what are some of the additional implications that these funds might have so that they can make an educated decision as to whether this is the right choice for them or not? And we were also in talks with government agencies and other institutions to get waivers or to get permissions for families to not have that money count towards eligibility. Because to my earlier point, I think we wanted this to be an addition to other safety net programs that already exist and not a replacement. Because we don't believe this to be the end-all be-all. I think we do better when we believe that there's a safety net, that if we try something and it fails, we have something to fall back on. But when we live in fear that every decision that we make has really, you know, had this ripple effect that can put us in a worse position or could, we could be one step away from poverty as it stands, I think we're very fearful of making those decisions. So I think we really wanted families to be able to try and fail, to be able to set goals and 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 kind of figure out what they wanted to do to Sarah's point to have the power to say no or yes to know that they had a safety net to fall back on but that that safety net was not going to end at the end of the 18 months and they were like well I tried all these things and now I don't now I have to go back to be able to access all these resources and I'm not in a better place than I was to begin with so we really wanted so some of that education to be like This is something that we want to give families in addition to what they're already receiving to see what is the impact that that has on their well-being, not to be like, well, we're going to replace private dollars for federal dollars and then have families be in the exact same spot because now we're taking something and then giving them something to kind of replace what they lost. I think for us, what we've learned is that families that have engaged in financial coaching feel like they are in a better position or feel like they understand their finances a little better. We're seeing that families that have engaged in financial coaching are accessing opportunities such such as creating these like savings accounts for their children, um, understanding where do I put my money? Like, should I pay down debt? Should I create savings accounts? Families are making those decisions. And I think there's power in having access to resources so that then you can make educated decisions on what's best for your family. And some families have said, I got it. I needed this. And now I know what to do with it. And they're thriving. But I think every every individual is different and every family is different. And I think what this is teaching us is that it's not one size fits all. It's that it's a very individualized approach to how families are utilizing these resources and what supports they might need or might not need. So I I think for us, it was really important to have an array of services that they can tap into voluntarily or choose not to.
0: Thanks for sharing those thoughts, Melody, on the plus side of things and combining services. Sarah, you mentioned that you work more at a community level and to complement the guaranteed or basic income with community intervention. How does that link to what Melody's just said about what happens in their program? And to what extent is what you do also a product of the universal nature of the intervention?
1: Why plus? I mean, philosophically, basic income is not a poverty alleviation program. Theoretically, philosophically, it's an entitlement that every, every human being has, gets as soon as one is born. So it's like that. It's 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 equivalent to getting a voting right once you're 18. It's it's equivalent to the sun we enjoy, the air we enjoy. It's that, I mean, philosophically, spiritually speaking. So at the end of the day, basic income is something that we expect that a basic income is the foundation of a caring society. So the care is at the center, at the core of the basic income discussion, which means that we have to ensure. That we exactly what uh, Melody was talking about, that how do we create a caring environment? How do we create a care consciousness? See, it's a very difficult thing to do because we are saying it's unconditional. At the same time, to go and interact with people in order to provide to, to open a conversation about their needs and how they are being met or not met, and what are the institutions that can support. It could also, uh, it, it, if it goes wrong, it's almost like you're telling them how what to do with their money. You're telling them, okay, this is the right way to do blah, 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 okay? So there's a danger, there's a risk there. We, we try our best and people who are giving the money and the people who are doing the care work and the researchers who are researching, we try to make them different parties, different faces, so that people don't see them as one. The hand that gives is also telling me about uh, my financial planning, blah, 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 which means that they have some expectations and then all that, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, like a slippery ground. One one of and most concrete example I'll give you. People in these slums, they live in perpetual debt, which means that they borrow and then their wages, they keep repaying with the wages. Borrowing is a regular feature in different forms. And there are loan sharks everywhere. Now, one of the first things that people want to get rid of is this vicious cycle of debt. We didn't plan it, it was not part of our plan. And we didn't plan anything. In one of our roundtables, we had in the city with other NGOs that talk about our work, and some of them who are working on lending interest-free lending they're doing they're also non-profits they said oh wow you, you have five slums okay we'll come there and do our work okay so that's a completely a different NGO they come and they have uh, made connections with these people and they start lending them without any interest so that's what that's the work they do and this is fantastic and now people are able to keep off the loan sharks I mean, some of them are stopped borrowing from them some of them stop borrowing completely because as a family they get about 4,500 rupees which is like 30 40% of their monthly income which is quite substantial top up so at the end of the day the, the whole point is that the care principle uh, is the overarching umbrella under which we do these things and to ensure that in the process of this intervention we do no harm to them so that's also part of the care uh, principle and care thinking that you know we whatever we do we try to create care institutions which will support them
0: That care perspective is is very interesting. Melody, if I could ask a follow-up question to to Sarath first, which is something that you also mentioned around the exits and making sure that when you pull out or at least stop providing the income support, making sure that families don't fall off a cliff. And you mentioned that you make sure that they don't lose the safety net they already have, the benefits they already have, which is probably very different from the situation in India. And so, Sarath, how do you... Marry the the fact that it's a time limited pilot of eighteen months with the theoretical underpinnings of basic income, which is that it's an entitlement and in principle something that people have a right to for their lives, and it's a really really a safety net. It it offers this buffer from which people can choose and and have freedom to say no or yes, as you explained. How do you? see those two things in coexistence, your work on the pilot and then the theoretical principle of a basic income as something that people can rely on throughout their lives?
1: It's a difficult question to answer. I mean, ideally, universal basic income is for a lifetime and the state is supposed to give this and which I believe that eventually I think all governments will come to that. All that we can do including the 12- year project in Kenya by grip directly, I think all that we can do is to demonstrate the effects of one is that the scientific project of bringing out evidence. The second is that a pilot actually generates a lot of political energy. it, goes to the press, and a lot of people say this is a good idea, a lot of people say this is nonsense, and uh, there is a controversy, and controversy is good for any campaign. So, given all those objectives, we are hoping, in India at least, some of the local governments are really buying in unconditionality. They see a lot of merit in unconditionality because it cuts through a lot of bureaucratic uh, bullshit that happens.
0: And Melody, I saw you nodding when Sarath was talking about how the pilots can generate debate and also controversy but this may be helpful in also getting the word out what have you seen in Boston from the pilot that you've implemented or the intervention that you've created
2: yeah I think for similarly to what Sarah was saying around like what the purpose of this is and the idea that we want this to be the norm not the exception but we want it You know, you need to test it out and we need to create a buzz around it, I think, for in the city and the mayors for guaranteed income have done it at a city level. And I think our take is, yes, it's great when we can do it at a city level, but you lose a little bit of that relationship because you're serving thousands of people and not really able to follow up or have access. I like something that Sarah was saying, which is about this idea of like the slippery slope where we want to make sure that people don't feel like... Yes, it's unconditional, but you're also showing me this. So I feel like now I have to take part of this, but it's more like how do we create and build the trust where we provide access to resources that people can opt into if they feel like it will benefit them and their families or opt out. And I think what, what our take is, is that we want to show the power of doing it at a grassroots level because it cuts down on some of the bureaucracy. It builds from the bottom up The nonprofits organizations, especially those of us that are doing the work on the ground, really understand our families and what our families are going through and some of what other needs are and already have those relationships built in. So there's a level of trust that exists already at that level. And we're trying to show like, hey, it's great that we're doing it at the city level. How about dissipating some of those funds and giving nonprofits the power to do it on their level so that they can have those relationships, they can provide access to additional resources, they can really create an array of services and programs that are supporting families in addition to the money. But I think for us, the most important thing was to Kind of showcase that some of the myths that exist around guaranteed income, which is yeah. like it's going to disincentivize the workforce. People are going to use the money in a way that it's not what we deemed correctly, or this is not going to work. I think a lot of what we are testing out is that no, people are actually entering the workforce. People are finding work that pays a living wage. People are going back to school. People are finding ways. To really integrate in a way that works for them and we're we're having more skilled workers because people now have the possibility to say yes to training programs whereas before they had to take whatever job was available to them because they needed to pay their bills so we really wanted to showcase the power of of giving people money and i think for us one of the reasons what we are not measuring what people are spending the money on was because we felt like we do not want the narrative around this to be like, well, people are spending most of the money here, most of the money there, because that's beside the point. And what we tell families is like, you do what's best for you. What we hope to see is like, what are the outcomes? What is this doing for your family? I don't need to know where $3 are going or a hundred are going or five, like what percentage is being spent where? And I think that was something that, that was a conclusion that we came at early on, which is like, we really want the dignity behind the program and the agency is like, I don't want people telling me how they're spending their money. I would love to know what this money is doing for them and what are some of the long-term impacts. So I think this is also what is showcasing is that it isn't so much about like where the money is going, is what is the money doing for the families? Is this a way to sort of change the narrative around poverty and what people in poverty are able to do and fit in with where our philosophy has been all along, which is people make the choices that they make because they're in poverty and because they don't have the possibility to make other choices. People are not in poverty because of the choices that they make. I, I think for us, that was a really important sort of baseline where we wanted people to understand No, you're not in poverty because you are making bad choices that have landed you there. A lot of people that are in poverty is generational. I think it's like the choices that you are making are a result of the situation that you're in and the fact that you are not able to exercise the muscle of free will or like you can't go to school. You don't have the choice. You don't have the ability to make choices or to even think about. Like, I think it's really hard to learn about savings or debt reduction when you don't have any income to do that with right like if I'm only getting a hundred dollars, how do I learn about saving when I know exactly where those hundred dollars are going? I don't have the ability to sort of exercise this idea or this muscle of, well, I'm gonna put five dollars away every month because I don't have any income to put five dollars away every month. But if we give people the possibility to do that, then we're teaching them in some way the idea of making choices and thinking about what they can do or cannot do. And like, well, if I put five dollars, can I put 10? So I think for us, it was really important to showcase that and showcase the power of the relationship building and the power of doing it at a grassroots level and what that can do for the families that we're serving.
0: Really powerful as well to hear you say that the principle in the program was to highlight it's not people's choices that have brought them to where they are, but it's where they are that limits their opportunities. How's that for you, Sarath, in the Hyderabad program and the program that you've
1: worked on before? Um, I think that brings us to the question you raised about will people become drunkards or will people, what will they use this money for? My my immediate response to that is, I think that that is a master's narrative about the slave. And also hidden behind that narrative is also master's insecurity about the, the slave running away and leaving him without the labor resources, you know? It comes from that kind of mindset. And when I say master, I think that master kind of mentality. In today's world, I think it's a complete prejudice of the middle class, the mythology that the middle class has created about the poor. Who are these poor? What kind of people are they? What kind of animals are they? What do they do when they have money? What do they do when they have security? I mean, what do they do when they have income security? How can anybody say that income security will result in drunkenness? In which case, I think every child of a rich man should become a drunkard, isn't it? What is the logic behind that? This is, I'm just, I just label it as a master's narrative because all the, I mean, in fact, what Melody was saying, also all the pilots so far, I have read about our experience, I have seen people coming back to working more actually. In fact, uh, there are so many cases that we see here, young people, they don't want to touch that money. They have just let it be there for six months now. They want to use it for when they have an emergency. We underestimate people's capacity to plan, (laughs) to take decisions for themselves. Uh, What Melody is saying is absolutely spot on Melody. I think that's exactly what my experience is that the moment you have an assurance for 18 months, I think you think very differently. I think your time horizon changes, transforms, and you don't think hand to mouth from today, about today and tomorrow, but you'll still slowly start planning. So a wide variety of things happen. and That's what gives us hope that this is actually a very good idea.
0: I'm really happy to hear the notion of hope about the future of a guaranteed or a basic income. To pick up, Melody, on something that you said about this earlier as well, which is that you have these citywide initiatives of guaranteed income, but but your intervention particularly looks at building a grassroots movement and providing, if you will, a more tailored approach to family situations, tying income with other supports and services that they can opt into. Now, many might say, that's really expensive. How are you actually going to implement this for people who are in need, many people who are in need? what would you say to that
2: well <laughs> it is very expensive but my way of looking at it in this case is thinking about if the city has the money why not funnel that money to nonprofit organizations so it will be the same idea just instead of the city handing out the funds partnering with nonprofit organizations to provide to think about what what other interventions or what other supports exist for the families that those organizations are working at. So I don't think about it as a completely private funded affair, which is what we're doing right now. Our intervention is 100% privately funded. I think we will be able to serve more families if we had some public funds to be able to supplement the private funds. I also think it creates this idea, and I think Sarah was speaking about this in some way, which is this community awareness or this idea that like it is our duty or like civic responsibility to support our neighbor and in in Boston and particularly where we are in the South End, which is a very diverse neighborhood. We have buildings that are multimillion dollar townhouses next to subsidized housing or families that live at or below The poverty level. And I think the idea of privately funding some of this is this idea of like, how do I support my neighbor so that we are all doing better. I I think there is something to be said for combining public support with private support to serve more families and to also create some sort of like synergy we want to incentivize especially young people and young professionals to give back and to give back meaningfully into the communities that they're in and and support and i think doing it at a grassroots level if there are nonprofits and organizations that are in your community and you can support these kinds of initiatives, it's a way to sort of support the whole and better the community. And and, and I think there is power in that.
0: Thanks, Melody. I'm aware that we are close to time. I think we could go for a lot longer because there's a lot to be said about this, but I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you're both very busy. Is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners before we close? Anything I haven't asked about or you haven't been able to share just yet? And maybe Sarah, if I can start with you first.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't see a basic income society it is a utopian idea. When I say a basic income society, I mean, a society whose foundation is a basic income. And then on top of that, every other institution is there, labor market is there. It's not that everything will disappear once basic income is there. So basic income is the kind of a ground on which you stand. I mean, mean, fine, capitalism, okay. But I don't want a capitalism that starts with zero. You have it there and people can stand and then let them participate in the labor market and then let them acquire skills and education and um, all that. But then give a floor. I think... That is going to be a necessity in the coming 20, 30 years because of the technological advances that are taking place. And I think there are not going to be many jobs at all levels. I think at the bottom level, it's going to be automated. At uh, the top level, uh, other things are going to happen. Last twentieth century, mid twentieth century, that golden time when everybody thought of economists thought of full employment is it's a it's a kind of a, it's a past. Forget about full employment. I think even secure employment and secure income itself today is a kind of there are exceptions. People few people have that kind of security. Bulk of the population all over the world is is insecure. All governments have to come to terms with this new predicament of the 21st century. By the middle of 21st century, I think things are going to get worse across the board. So I I can see that this is the only way out. I can't think of any other way out. No government can promise jobs to people. So, I mean, I, I just want people to not look at basic income as a kind of a utopian idea. Oh, no, 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 all this will not work. Where is the money going to come from and all that? Of course, I as Melody said, I just reiterated the point that money is there. Money is there with governments. But the, the question is that we have to interrogate how the current assets and current money is being spent. It's like going to a doctor and telling the doctor, I want to live for 100 years, but ask me not to change any of my lifestyle this is ridiculous. If we want a basic income society, we have to really put under the microscope how exactly are we doing the current so-called welfare. I mean, it stigmatizes people and it it is everything opposite of care that we are talking about. Those institutions are so uncaring. Capitalism itself is uncaring, but within that we are trying to create a care establishment and institutions
0: a very clear prospect for the future. Thank you, Sarah. Melody. Thank you, Sarah. I
2: a hundred percent agree. And I think for me, one of the things that I would say is that I think it's going to become the norm, not the exception, or I hope it becomes the norm, not the exception. And I also think it is giving us an opportunity to evaluate the way that we do welfare, as Sarah was mentioning, or like safety net programming? And what are some of the baseline find like implications that our current programs have this idea that we dictate what people need that we are saying we are supporting families but in the way that we see fit not in the way that families need I think this is giving us a real opportunity to sort of pause and and think about how are we serving those who need it most how are we really supporting the society in a way that's efficient. Because I think when people are thinking about guaranteed income, they're like, I don't have the money. And I'm like, how much money is spent on programs that do not work? And families have to fill out endless amounts of paperwork to receive $200 a month. That's not solving a problem. But those $200 are actually costing us thousands and thousands of dollars. But what's getting to the hands of the people are $200 And most of the time, families can't access them. There are all these roadblocks. So I think the idea that the money doesn't exist is not a valid idea. It's like, how are we utilizing the funds that we have in the best way? And how do we destigmatize this idea? And I love what you said, Sarah, about this idea of the master mentality of like, we know, and if we give people money, this is what they're going to do. And that's why we can't do it this way. So I'm gonna do it this other way. Like, how do we keep people tied into these systems that do not work and that by nature are keeping people down. In the U.S., you're eligible to receive these benefits if you make under a certain amount. But if I get a dollar raise at my job that's actually moving me forward, I lose all of these safety net programs. (laughs) So I'm actually in a worse position to begin with. And then people are saying, well, Born out not going back to work. And I'm like, I wouldn't do it either, right? Like if I earn a dollar more, but now I'm going to lose my housing or I, I don't know where my food is going to come from, it's not a smart idea to do that. I'll rather get this that is a certain than go into the uncertain and lose the, the safety net. So I think the way that the system is created is sort of like, I told you so, well, I'm giving people this, but I'm taking this away. It, it's sort of like a punitive system that that is self-serving so it's serving on the stereotypes because that's how it's created so i think that if we dismantle that and we create this idea or we establish guaranteed income as a way forward or basic income as a way forward then we can begin to sort of dismantle the master mentality or the white supremacy views that have kept society in the way that it is and i do think that it's one step in the right direction. I think there are many other things that need to change, but I think this is the one thing that we know works and that we can do, and that I think will begin to move the needle in
0: some way.
1: Absolutely. Spot on, Melody. Completely agree with you.
0: Thank you, Melody. Yes, a very powerful closing of of this episode. And I love what you both said about using this opportunity and using basic or guaranteed income as a sort of entry point to transform systems away from being punitive, stigmatizing, based on blame towards those that are based on care and dignity and respect. And I'm sure listeners will really appreciate your insights and this episode. Thank you
1: both. Thank you, Melanie, and you. thank you, Katie.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Nice to meet you.
1: Bye-bye. Nice to meet you.
0: Thank you both.
2: Bye.
0: Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please spread the word about our podcast and leave us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next time.